Easy original. You almost need to drink like a craft beer. <laughs> get the, one of them down. Then right, you can yeah, understand. I, I just told you about one thing because going through the old podcast, I heard this a couple of times. Hipsters do not drink craft beer. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to the season finale of Studio BZ. This is season three, episode 16 of Austin's number one podcast, a perch we have climbed to in our one year of existence. We're very proud of this, job. Finale? This is the season finale, but we will be back. We're just taking a brief hiatus. There's almost, there'll, there'll be almost as much anticipation of our return as there was for Game of Thrones. Well, a it's brief true. hiatus? What, what am I supposed to do? I know. Who are you talking <laughs> With to? all this free time. <laughs> to whom will I scream about inane things? <laughs> I'll just talk to that idiot in my bathroom mirror at home, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Catch up on Game of Thrones. You can watch um, all the seasons you have. Yeah, I've got seen. a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> as in, I've never watched a minute of that I'm, crap. I have, I have not either. Oh, yeah. Not, yes. not, not, well, it's I, not okay. out of a, it's I'm uh, fist bumping John. It's not out of some moral objection to the show. I just I don't have HBO and I haven't scammed my way into an account yet. This is I, unusual. Here I am, the woman. I'm the uh, yeah. I'm the Thrones fan. I have an unpopular uh, opinion to express. I Please don't like do. dragons. Okay. Okay, that's <laughs> I just, fine. I just don't. I get it. I don't care for them. Really? I get it. They don't impress These me. These dragons no? are charming. I mean, These you know, are charming. They floss, are. floss, pop a mint, <laughs> something. <laughs> All this fire breathing—it it sucks. Yeah, this makes you wish you had dragons the way they're unleashed on the queen's yeah. enemies. But uh, anyway, so, <laughs> I don't know how that well, happens. She's so powerful. We have so uh, yes, we have much so in much. this final. Uh, episode of the season of the Studio BZ, The Trial of Lizzie Borden. This is a book from uh, a very impressive law mind, Kara Robertson, who's a Harvard graduate, Stanford law degree, clerked uh, for the, on the Supreme Court, clerked at The Hague, and she has studied now for two decades the case of Lizzie Borden. Did she or did she not do it? She uncovered uh, some letters that Lizzie Borden sent. We're going to talk with her about her new book. She is fascinating. And then an incredible conversation with Dr. Judy Garber from Dana-Farber about 25 years of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. We all sort of uh, I think take it for granted at this point that there is this tremendous level of fundraising for breast cancer research, but she really lays out what the difference it's made in a diagnosis for someone from the early 90s to today and uh, what the money that has been raised because of BCRF means for diagnosis and treatment for the future. It really is remarkable. And then Love Letters columnist uh, Meredith Goldstein, the new season of her podcast, Love Letters, is out. We talk with her about relationships in the digital age, some of the strangest pieces of uh, advice and questions that she's gotten over the last year. Very fascinating conversation with Meredith. Yeah, which she doesn't hear anymore, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. You know what I love best about her column, Meredith Goldstein's yeah. column? She'll uh, give this em empathic thoughtful response to, you know, someone who's, uh, should I stay with this guy or not? He's still married, but he says he loves me or whatever. Yeah. And then she turns it over to her readers and the readers are, forget <laughs> empathy. They're like, dump him. He's yeah. using you. He's a scumbag. There's no Can't nuance. You see this. 
true Bostonian voices Fantastic. coming That's true. through. You have to column. click down to comments yeah. under yeah. her love letters column. And then, as Paula mentioned, uh, this is our one-year anniversary. We're teething. We're still in diapers, but <laughs> we're going to graduate soon. Yeah. Uh, we are uh, cruising, grabbing. John's on his way back to diapers, and, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to pay a terrible, a terrible now. price for that, you young punk. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, what do you think should be in our best of show, which is coming up a week from this week? Uh, we'll uh, throw out some options, talk, debate what uh, we thought some of the highlights of the past year will be, and I'm sure the focus ultimately will be mainly on my interviews. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> the case that has never left the psyche of the American public, especially here in New England, the murder trial of Lizzie Borden, the Fall River woman who in August of 1892 was accused of murdering her parents with an axe. So joining us now with a riveting new book about the murders and the trial of the 19th century is Cara Robertson. Her book out now is called The Trial of Lizzie Borden, a true story. And uh, Cara is joining us on Skype because this book is exploding and her book tour has been exhaustive. So thanks so much for taking some time out to, to join us and talk about this book. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So your resume is, uh, shall we say, impressive. Uh, Harvard undergrad, PhD in English from Oxford, law degree from Stanford. You clerked on the Supreme Court. You served as a legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal at The Hague. So you can probably judge this best. Did Lizzie Borden murder her parents? Well, as you can imagine, I get that question a lot. Yes. Um, and my non-spoiler uh, alert is that I don't answer that question in the book mm -hmm. uh, because I thought it was important to stay as close to the primary sources as possible and let the reader puzzle it out for him or herself. I think you um, you are taken by the the evidence one way and then another and then back again. Uh, and there's a reason it's been a mystery for mm. over 100 years. So you're agnostic as the author in the book, but will you reveal your personal feelings? Do you think she <laughs> well, did it? I, uh, um, I think that I ended up pretty much where I started out, which is that it's, it would have been very difficult for her to have commit, committed two murders like that, um, mm. cleaned herself up, and... Uh, and at the same time, it would have been pretty much impossible for anyone else to have done it. Yeah, I, I, I will, I, because I'm not the author of this book, I will say I think she did it. I think she did it. I'm just going to come out and say I think she did it based on the Liam research. has convicted her. <laughs> right. If I were on yeah. that jury, I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. Right. Um, and you actually began researching. Well, let's go back. Yeah, yeah. You, you began researching the case in the 90s when you were an undergraduate at Harvard. Why did you have such a fascination with the story? Well, I thought it was a... Uh, you know, a terrific whodunit, um, mm -hmm. or at the very least a why done it, if you're like Liam and you know who did mm -hmm. it. Um, so I, I liked that aspect of it, the mystery. And then I also um, thought a trial was a terrific way to um, get a window onto the Gilded Age, mm. uh, which is an age, you know, very much like our own. Mm. For someone who doesn't know the story of these murders, let's let's go back a bit and set the stage. It's August 1892. It's in Fall River. Andrew Borden, who was this very well-to-do businessman in town, and his second wife, Abby, so Lizzie Borden's stepmother, 
were found murdered in their home on 2nd Street in Fall River. Can you set the stage of what happens the morning of these murders? Uh, Yes. Andrew Borden leaves, uh, as is his custom, to attend business downtown Um, around 930 in the morning. Abby Borden is struck down in an upstairs guest room by about 19 blows of a hatchet or some other kind of sharp uh, object. Um, Mr. Borden returns about 1045, uh, and then he too is dead within uh, 20 minutes. Um, He's struck by 10 blows as he's lying down on his settee in the sitting room. He's having a nap, and someone Mm -hmm. comes up, and and the the issue that the police find is that all the doors were locked. And so only the people who were in the house, they eventually narrow it down or who had access to the house could have been suspects. Is that right? That's right. There are three people known to have been in the house that morning. Uh, The first, John Morse, is uh, Andrew Borden's brother-in-law from his first marriage. Mm -hmm. And he has a uh, an alibi straight out of a detective novel. Um, he leaves shortly after breakfast and uh, rides on a horse car across town to visit relatives, uh, accompanied by six priests. Hmm. Uh, and the good alibi. And that leaves hmm. uh, two two women in the house. Uh, one of whom was the family's domestic servant, uh, an Irish immigrant named Bridget Sullivan. Hmm. She was out washing uh, windows outside. Um, <laughs> at the time that Mrs. Borden was killed. So she seemed to have an alibi. Hmm. And that left Andrew Borden's younger daughter, Lizzie, who was 32 years old, unmarried, Mm -hmm. and gave shifting accounts of her uh, whereabouts during Mm -hmm. the critical periods. Well, and so much of this uh, gender and class comes into play, and you get into that Mm -hmm. in the book. I do want to just say that you start the book with that moment at the pharmacy where where Lizzie Borden walks in. She says she wants to buy this... uh, very specific type of poison called prussic acid, which is is a fatal poison, right? Yes, it's it's one of the deadliest poisons uh, that can be had. And the pharmacist tells uh, the person who asked for it, um, a woman who is later identified as Lizzie Borden, um, that it is only sold on a doctor's prescription. She insists that she has bought it on other occasions and hmm. also says that she uh, needs it to clean a sealskin cape. And hmm. this is very significant, both because it suggests that assuming this was indeed Lizzie Borden, uh, that she might have had murder on her mind before August 4th uh, and suggests a certain amount of intent or premeditation. And it also uh, gives the prosecution a way to explain why an otherwise uh, respectable young woman would pick up an axe. Hmm. To commit a murder uh, because the axe or the hatchet is seen as a male weapon mm-hmm. or at least not a weapon that that would be used by a, by a woman like Lizzie Borden. One other thing back to sort of touch on class. How does the Irish maid explain these two murders happening? But she didn't. Did she talk about what she heard? It's fascinating. They didn't immediately blame her. Right. And she was scared <laughs> for, huh. good, for good reason, given yeah that in the uh, late 19th century, certainly an immigrant would have been more likely Mm -hmm. to fall under suspicion than the daughter of the house um, from a family like the Bordens. Mm. So as I mentioned, the um, housekeeper was definitely outside while Mrs. Borden was killed. Mm -hmm. And so that was seen um, as pretty good evidence that she didn't commit the other murder too. Mm. And she was up uh, napping, recovering from 
a food, food poisoning incident that had hit pretty much most of the family, though significantly Lizzie Borden, much less so. Um, mm, poisoning. And so that seemed to put her, exactly, that seemed to, to put her out of the way. And one of the things that people noted, and, and some of this um, was brought up by the defense, that Lizzie Borden's own account of uh, the morning of the murder seemed to clear Bridget. Mm-hmm. Suggesting that, um, at least in their mind, that if she had been the murderer, she would have tried to pin it on the um, maid rather than trying to clear her. Mm. Yeah, that can cut both ways there. No pun pun intended. Mm. Um, I do want to get to the acquittal because it's fascinating for a variety of reasons. But just given that we're talking about Bridget Sullivan, the housemaid, you have some of these incredible accounts from... Uh, the papers at the time and from some of the court documents Mm. of the way people described Bridget Sullivan when she was considered a suspect. This was a time when uh, both Irish immigrants and Catholics were viewed with a lot of suspicion and they would just put it right out in the open. Uh, One of the the Borden family lawyer at one point seconded the suspicions surrounding Bridget Sullivan, you write here in the book, asking pointedly in the natural course of things, who would be the party to be suspected? Suggesting, mm. well, of course, it's, of course, it, it's it, it, of course it's her because she's Irish and Catholic and why should we trust them? And it was unbelievable to mm. see the way it, it was just so direct, mm. the mm-hmm. uh, prejudice. Right out. Yeah, many, many people uh, wrote into the chief of police and said, and said, you know, why on earth have you not just arrested the servant? Because we know that uh, um, we know all sorts of terrible things about Catholics mm. uh, and suggested that they might you know, be in league with some kind of international popish conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as you say, the prejudice was very open. Mm-hmm. Though I should note that uh, the local Irish Catholic paper, the Fall River Globe, took uh, care to point out this prejudice and suggested that if, you know, if a mill hand or someone like Bridget Sullivan had really been a credible suspect, that that person would have been arrested a lot sooner than Lizzie Borden and would have been treated mm-hmm. differently mm-hmm. upon being arrested. Right. So why do police zero in on Lizzie? Uh, because Lizzie has the motive. Uh, it, you know, because it seems that the things in the family are not um, are not happy, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah. That there's a uh, that there's a uh, the, there's at the very least very bad feeling between the stepmother and uh, the Borden daughters, Lizzie and her sister Emma. Um, she gives the shifting accounts. She uh, allegedly tried to buy poison. Uh, there's evidence that she burned a dress uh, on the Sunday after the murders, which might account for why no blood was seen on her person after the murders. Mm. And all of this this uh, coalesced into a... Um, a strong suspicion that she must be the person responsible. So she eventually stands trial, and it was immediately the biggest thing to happen in Massachusetts in a generation. I think one of the local papers you point out called it uh, the start of, of one of the greatest trials of the century. And uh, it doesn't didn't last very long. It's not like our court proceedings now with a murder trial where they last forever. It lasted just a few weeks. And then it took the jury just an hour and a half to acquit her. So... Why was she acquitted? In your opinion, did did class come into play here? Was there sort of this sense that this well-to-do woman could not possibly have committed these terrible murders? 
Yeah, they were. The the jury was unanimous um, on its first ballot, and they only waited the 90 minutes so that they, it would look as if they had deliberated. It was all men, of course. Huh. Of, uh, yes, no women, no women sat on a Massachusetts jury until 1951. Mm. Uh, but so I, I, my sense is that this isn't a case of reasonable doubt. That this is a case of, um, uh, you know, essentially certainty that someone mm. like Lizzie Borden, a woman who ticked all the boxes of proper middle class womanhood, mm-hmm. um, someone like her could not have killed her father in this way. Hmm. They couldn't conceive of it. Just. Looking I, th- at I think so. I think I think mm. given that um, given that she presented this this on the one hand, this very enigmatic figure in the courthouse, uh, someone who seemed very self-possessed. And that was read, you know, one of two ways by people who were not sympathetic. They thought this seemed like a kind of coldness or detachment that that was almost masculine and mm. was consistent with premeditated violence. But for most people, uh, partic- and particularly the jurors, uh, and many of the out-of-town reporters, this seemed very consistent with proper ladyhood, that this was true American grit bearing up under an unjust suspicion. Huh. And Kari, you end the book on this one, um, this sort of cliffhanger about we actually could have the answer, the, the definitive answer to whether or not she did it in the defense files, but we're, we're still not allowed to see them? That's right. The, uh, Lizzie Borden's chief... Uh, defense lawyer was the former governor of Massachusetts, uh, whose name was George Robinson. Uh, and he died uh, in 1896, rather suddenly, three years after the uh, acquittal. Um, and the law firm continues to this day. And they have files uh, of his from that trial. And their position is that they cannot disclose the files, nor can they even describe uh, what is in them. I'm just shocked that in all these years, no one has leaked those. No one has said, you know, let's get the answer here, open up the vault, see whether or not she did this thing. Uh, I I know it is quite intriguing uh, to have this one mystery Mm. remaining. It's interesting, too, because they they have, um, I I did ask the senior partner, um, you know, if your position is that you can never disclose these, why are you preserving them? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And he he said, uh, well... You know, it would be abhorrent to destroy something that was this historically important. Hmm. Huh. So it's just an odd. It's, it's a an very odd that is a that bit of a paradox. Yeah. It is. All it right. is. The book is the trial of Lizzie Borden. The true story. The author is Kara Robertson. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And good luck with the book. Well, thank you for having me. Creativity combined with innovations in technology. This year marks 25 years since the Breast Cancer Research Foundation began with the goal of ending breast cancer. And now BCRF is the largest private funder of breast cancer research worldwide. And joining us to talk about where that research stands and what comes next is Dr. Judy Garber, who's the co-scientific director of BCRF and the chief of the Division of Cancer Genetics and Prevention at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. You know, BCRF was founded in the early 90s. And when you think about 25 years ago, what a different landscape it was for people as soon as they got a breast cancer diagnosis. How different is it now than it was then? Oh, it's tremendously different. Mm. We used to think about breast cancer as one disease. Now we know that it is not one disease at all. It has a hormonally driven subtype and subtypes that are 
exploited for their molecular biology. Mm. We have targeted therapies that have completely changed the way breast cancer is treated and how successfully we can treat breast cancer. And we've learned a lot about ways to minimize surgery or sometimes to maximize surgery depending mm. what people need. Mm. We didn't have cancer genes in the early 1990s. Mm. We didn't know who was at risk in the same way. And the BRCA gene. The BRCA genes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have preventive medications like tamoxifen. Right. We've had a transformation of the field in 25 years. And the BCRF has done a lot to move us in that way with all the money that has been raised. We have a one statistic here. This year alone, $63 million in research to 300 scientists in 14 countries. So what are some of the promising leads in both uh, prevention and then treatments that we have seen and that are, are kind of at the cutting edge right now? I'd say the most promising leads have been in treatment, or at least at the moment. Immunotherapy, which has found its way to change completely the treatment of melanoma and lung cancer, also is finding its way in breast cancer. So patients today may get an immune therapy. We have drugs that have made hormonal treatments much more potent. We call them CDK4-6 inhibitors, which are actually advertised on television that way, which is kind of odd, but at least there are drugs you can take to make your hormonal treatment stronger. We are working on ways and have made progress in ways to monitor breast cancer with blood tests instead of with images. Not yet ready for early diagnosis or early detection, but very much a part of looking for disease monitoring over time, trying to reduce the number of x-rays one needs. Um, so I would say those are maybe the most exciting, but you know, when you have 300 researchers working full-time on breast cancer, who knows what can happen? There are bound to be breakthroughs, and it is such a difficult question to answer because of so many factors, but one in eight women still in this country will develop breast cancer at some point in her lifetime. Are we any closer to a cure? Oh, I think we are. Yes, we cure patients every day. Mm. Now, partly that's because we have learned that some tumors are more easily cured and we try not to overtreat them. So less chemotherapy, we have ways of analyzing the tumor so we can avoid chemotherapy, but still cure patients. We don't cure every patient, but patients who are HER2 positive, that subset of patients we cure I mean, that was the worst, most aggressive breast mm -hmm. cancer, and today those patients are cured most of the time. We do cure breast cancer, but we haven't figured out how to prevent it mm. on a, much of a scale yet. And we're not finished. We have patients die every day from breast cancer. So BCRF will be here making sure that that will be the end of breast cancer when we and can stop that. So much of prevention really is screening. And there are some conflicting studies right now about how early and how often women should be screened. What's your take on that? I think we are coming to a time when we can target screening just like we target treatment. So when we can effectively stratify people by risk, so low-risk women won't have to have so many mammograms, can start at 50 and every other year may be just fine or even less, but high-risk women need mammograms, maybe breast MRIs, studies more often, maybe other ways. When we can really do that better, and I think we are actually much closer to that too than we were. But when we can do that better, that will help. The other thing people are doing is adding artificial intelligence mm. to the interpretation of mammograms. You know, we have MIT here, and those brains are going to try to improve the way that radiologists detect cancers. Amazing. So I think we can do smarter screening.
And we should put in a little plug about how fundraising remains the key for BCRF. And uh, here in Boston, uh, the, what, the Hot Pink Party is coming up on April 23rd. And by the way, uh, that will be honoring Patriots head coach Bill Belichick and Linda Holiday this year. But BCRF always points out that the money that's raised, for instance, in Boston at this event, will stay with the researchers in Boston. So fortunately for us in Boston, we have so many wonderful researchers that the Boston money stays and other money comes to Boston as well. We are dedicated to making a difference. That's great. And I'll be, I'm happy to be emceeing that event that night. And we have all the information about how people can get tickets and how they can come on CBSBoston.com. So all that information is there. Dr. Judy Garber, thank you so much for being here and thank you for the work that you do helping women. Well, thank you both very much for highlighting breast cancer research. Meredith Goldstein is the Love Letters columnist at the Boston Globe and a friend of the broadcast. And the second season of her podcast, Love Letters, is now out. Meredith, welcome back to the show. It's always good to see you. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, the second season uh, of your podcast is out. The mm -hmm. first season, you explored breakups, yes. how to get over a breakup, and now you're covering how to meet someone. Right. We call it the prequel. You can't get dumped until you meet someone. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> so, yes, it's all about how to meet someone in this day and age, what's the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. And we have some, you know, after doing a whole season about breakups, it's nice to talk to people about their love stories mm. and the their falling in love stories. Interesting thing these days, I think, about meeting someone are the dating apps. Yeah. That we've sort of gone, you know, Match.com sort of had a huge wave and there's been Bumble and Hinge and there are so many. Um, do you find that there's sort of a new popular app every six months or is there one that is consistently a good place to meet people? You know, I think these apps are great at rebranding themselves, right? Ah. I see that Hinge right now has a whole rebranding and I think that for some people they get sick of one, they try another. There are very niche uh, apps like Dog Lovers and, um, mm. you know, so uh, I think some people can find their way to those apps. But at the end of the day, I think people wind up in those original you know, dating sites turned apps and, and even Tinder because it's got, you know, a, a huge amount of people on them. And that swipe left, swipe right function is really, mm -hmm. it's simple. You, yes. know, you either do or you don't want to meet <laughs> this person. Throughout the second season of Love Letters, you're following a woman. She's in her 40s. She's 44. Her yes. name is Erin, and she's looking for love. Uh, why did you zero in on her story? Well, we knew we were going to have people telling their stories in every episode, but I wanted one consistent narrative, and I thought, what is it like to be exhausted by dating? That's, that's a really typical letter I see, that dating fatigue, we call it. And Erin wrote me a letter after meeting me at a Love Letters event, and she said, I am so sick of dating. What can I do if I want to meet someone? And I called her and I said, would you let us follow you? So she's an incredible sport, and basically week to week, we're, we're getting a sense of her life, and some weeks she does nothing. Some weeks she has a date from an app. Um, some weeks she, you know, tries to go out in the world and meet people that way. So it's been a real learning experience just to see what her life is like. And did she end up finding someone? Well, we are still in progress. So we're, you know, <laughs> we're really up to the moment on this podcast. So people have said to me, like, are you going to couple her off? And of course, narratively, that would be lovely. But, you know, I also want to give an accurate showing of what it's like mm -hmm. to be single. So I think Erin just, you know, wants to see what potential is out there. There yeah. are probably people out there who don't have someone who want to meet someone is there a best way you think or is, is that really individual a best way um i think it's very individual but i also think that you got to do what you like to do right and i think you do have to probably get out of the house and maybe get off your phone sometimes but um you know you got you got to see i think there are a lot of people who think they have to you know 
play a sport they don't want to play or a class they don't want to learn anything about and you don't have to do that. It's like finding hobbies and activities and apps even that naturally appeal to you. All right. And you are the Love Letters columnist yes. at the Globe. So you're doing this week in, week out. What are some of the best questions you've received, things that leap right to mind over the last year or so? In the last year, I think people are really trying to figure out how nice they have to be to exes and people from their former lives online. Mm. You know, there's so many ways we can orbit each other. That's a word that's thrown around a lot now. You have two dates with someone, they're following you on Snapchat, Facebook, all of these other platforms. Is it rude to block them? Do you have to stay in touch mm. with them? I think because there are all of these sort of, you know, far away, you know, methods of spying on each other and staying in someone's life, people don't know when to disconnect. I mean, we've had letters about Venmo. People see oh, each other's yeah. Venmo trends. Yeah, going, right. So, so, what do you tell them? Uh, I tell them to block. I tell them that if you were, you know, you would, you would not really want to talk to peop these people in person. That it's not rude to block. It's like a part of life, and it's okay. Mm. I hate blocking. I know. I, do. But I hate it's a thing. It's it's like you're hard, sending that message to that person that you that, care that, that you, you care too much to see it. Yeah. But I think it's okay, and I think that you know, listen, if you wouldn't walk up to the person at a party, you probably shouldn't be following their feed. Well, because it can be a little stalkerish, right? Yeah, and it can. You can. <laughs> you're create, not dating anymore, but you can still see and, where they're coming. And, and you can create a narrative, right? If you see your ex-partner, like, you know, buying things on Venmo, you might create a whole story about what's happening there that mm. is not true. Mm. This is the 10-year uh, anniversary, we should say, of your column in yes. the Globe. Can you believe it's been 10 years? No. Um, and yes, it's, sometimes it feels like 20 years and sometimes it feels like two years. So I'm really grateful that we still have a really engaged audience and and that they're, you know, I the, the breakup and love industry is a good industry to be in because yeah. people are always going to be dating and dumping each other. It's, it's a tale as old as time. Yep. What are some of the stories or questions that you're encountering now that 10 years ago you did not encounter at all? I think dating fatigue is the big one. I think mm. that because as soon as apps started, you can be dating all day. People yeah, could be dating date every day. right now and they could be swiping right now. And I hear from so many people, you know, I'm not on the apps today. Did I miss my soulmate? Right. Whereas it used to be even with online dating, you could get on a computer, log in, log off and you were done. Mm. And people are exhausted and they want to know how much mm. they have to do it before they take a break. What were some issues 10 years ago that people asked all the time that you don't hear about anymore? Snooping. The first two years of love letters, everybody was breaking into each other's email accounts, mm. texts, and I was trying to figure out why don't people send me snooping letters anymore. And I think the reason is that because we are so available on social media that you can really figure out what your partner ate for breakfast, where they went after that. In some cases, you can track them geographically. So I think in year one and year two, people were like, oh, I need to figure out what my significant other is doing. Now they're like, I know exactly what they're yeah. doing. So no, there's no more need for snooping. We have absolutely yeah. no well, privacy. People, they, they, people didn't stop snooping. They just... Now they can do it without having to break the law, yeah. break into yeah. someone's account. You just see it right there. Yeah. Here I thought people were respecting each other's privacy, and then I thought, oh, no, they don't even need to anymore. No, yeah. Not at all. In terms of the dating, especially because of the apps, where the text after the dates mm. or what we're saying in those first crucial couple of days or weeks is so important. You can sense some people are, it's excruciating. They're agonizing over every moment of that. What do you advise about, it used to be waiting for the phone call, right? Right. And, and now it's the texting technique. Mm -hmm. I mean, my advice. one. <laughs> yeah. My advice has had to change so much. When emojis. I started. Emojis. Yeah, emojis. <laughs> my, one of my favorite letters in 10 years was from someone who said, my girlfriend is a black hole of never ending emojis. That this, his girlfriend just kept sending emojis and he was a bit older and was like, I don't even know how to communicate this way. So, you know, I think that 
now we just have to remember that not everyone is glued to their phone all day. So you can yeah. send a text and not get a, a, an immediate response, and it's okay. That's just a reminder I have to give to people all the time. Yeah, you yeah. don't have to drive to their house and see where they are. Why did they respond? Right. Why, where are they? Where are they? <laughs> we want to know this. I mean, in the beginning, I wouldn't have suggested to anyone that they ask someone out via text. It seemed really impersonal. Now that's mm. like a way of life. Now when I get a phone call, I'm like, what's wrong? Yeah, <laughs> what's, what's what is the emergency? emergency? Yeah. Exactly. Hey, why are you calling me? Who's yeah. dead? Right, exactly. Well, Meredith Goldstein, uh, the new podcast, Love Letters, second season is out. And, of course, the Love Letters column in The Globe. Thank you so much. Always good to see you. Thank you for having me. We'll be glued to the podcast. The goal is a city with charm, character, and diversity. Well, you know, it's been an interesting year. It's been a long year. This has been a work in progress here at Studio BZ. We thank everyone who's who's been along for the ride here and we appreciate uh, uh, the feedback we've been getting from you but uh, I guess looking back on it uh, for me uh, when I listen to a podcast whether it's this one or or any podcast um, I feel best about it when I come away having learned something Mm -hmm. that I didn't already know Mm -hmm. and that kind of takes me back to an interview that um, that Jonathan Case, our producer, set up with the founder of the, um, the Mark Abrams, Jonathan. Improbable. The, Improbable research. The, uh, yeah, the founder, what are they yes. called? The Ig Nobel Awards. Ig Nobel Awards, yes. Uh, yes. That they have over at Harvard for the most ridiculous sounding <laughs> academic papers of the year. And I had been aware of the Ig Nobel Awards and thought it was just sort of a big joke, like a sure, spook. like the Razzies. But as it turned out and as, as it emerged during this interview, there's more to it than that. Uh, he argued, uh, Mark Abrams, that in every one of these absurd, you know, the effect of uh, eye dilation in pygmies who are waiting in line <laughs> for a cheesesteak at Buzzy's Roast Beef, <laughs> uh, that in every one of these, there's something that you can learn and there's something of value in it mm-hmm. and that by ridiculing them, they hope to also bring out something of value. And you're drawing attention to actually there was something <laughs> worthwhile in all this. And research. getting people to, to mm-hmm. actually listen to something they wouldn't otherwise yeah. do. Mm-hmm. So that stands out for me. What I loved with each of the people that we spoke with most often was what they had taken from Boston that affected them in their lives or career or whatever the reason that we were speaking to them. And I would say going back all the way to Leslie Visser, uh, who was educated here and became one of the most important figures in sports journalism for women. Uh, Sandy Paradise, who is a local woman who is a fixture on Broadway behind the scenes. Tori Bullock, who does these amazing videos about what it's like to live in Boston in this era with housing prices and all kinds of issues. And then Henry Winkler, who was educated at Emerson College and has had such a varied and long career and is even popular to this day. I just love hearing what all of these people had to say about what they learned by being either from Boston or being educated here, what it is that makes this place unique. And speaking of some of these interviews, Jonathan, our intrepid producer, put together a couple of clips of some of the moments of the past year. Do you put a moisturizer on? I put a moisturizer 
on. So, I don't want to talk about but, my but it should, routine but because it should have it's probably more is it complicated? Uh, elaborate than it should be. <laughs> okay, yes, but, but he's an TMI, anchor. But, but he's an anchor. But exfoliate, <laughs> then moisturize, is everyone. It, you is it a three-part system, Leo? No, no. Uh, is creme de la mer involved? <laughs> Moving on. Um, I'm going to stop the show until you tell us what your skincare. <laughs> What's your skincare regimen? It's it's not all that complicated. You, you know, spill it. You, you clean the the makeup. I, I have to wear makeup. This there is going go. very badly. <laughs> And the ruling was on fairly narrow grounds. Yes, but very. Excuse me, I apologize. Um, and also, what was that? I'll tell you in a second. My, you know what that is? That is my Downton Abbey ringtone. Oh my God, you're kidding my me! My ringtone is the theme music to Downton Abbey because every time it rings, it makes me happy. I'm, I'm going to pass on that. I know. Paul. <laughs> It just, it just made me grateful that TV can't convey odor. Oh, goodness. Oh, wow. he, uh, he You're not rolling on this, is a, Oh, hell yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Good, Liam. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You East Coast elitist. <laughs> speaking in I really am the worst. Pulling out the Harvard. Can I do, I'll do it in Spanish for you. <laughs> <laughs> So here Paula and I were sitting here 3 p.m. Yeah. ready to record our podcast and he he's a no Why show. He's not even here. He's an <laughs> number one. He is not a John just gave me He a, just said uh, we're number one. Yes, John a gave me the response. John gave me a nonverbal response. <laughs> Well, why don't we? Uh, you know Maybe what? John could be the I'll ask this in an, uh, No, John. I don't mm-hmm. want to put it on that because at the end of the day, I'm correct. But um, <laughs> uh, we'll have John and Allie both weigh in on this. Although I think you were privy to the argument before, so as mm. you might be, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is? Hold on, are we rolling on this? Yes. Okay. Which is more a Thanksgiving pie? Pecan pie or apple pie? I thought it was pumpkin. Because uh, no, pumpkin was automatic. Is there are there prizes involved with this? If you side with uh, me, there could be. But you don't know which side. Well, I mean, if you're from the south, it's pecan, mm-hmm. and I prefer pecan pie. Mm-hmm. But okay. I would say New England, it's apple. Thank so you, that is John a, Kelly. That's a 50-50 okay, response. No, but furthermore, you said it was argument. pecan. Pecan yes. is more of a big, and, uh, uh, apple pie. First of all, is it's a, pecan. Uh, sure, pecan, pecan. even pecan. No, no, no. Even. But make your but argument about the summer pie. Business. Apple pie is a Fourth no- of July pie. It's the American pie. It's with whipped cream and ice cream on okay. the Fourth of July. It's not a Thanksgiving no. pie. Which, by the I way, I literally have never up, eaten well, a slice of apple pie in my life. Fourth of July on Thanksgiving. pie is a blueberry pie. Yes, and apples oh, are harvested in late September, no, early October. Uh, exactly. So you would make it for Thanksgiving. No, they're not. Apples the, aren't even. Ripe apples in are July. not ripe during Thanksgiving. What are you going to put no, yes. apples into? What are you talking into? about? When no. do you go apple picking with your kids? You go the last week in September. September. Exactly. September. That's yeah. two months away right. from Thanksgiving. You can them. The no, no, pilgrims no. They, after they plucked the apples those from the apples trees would be rotten by the time of no, Thanksgiving. No, they you would. Can't, you can't keep apples for two pickle. months. They would can them, they, t- put them with cinnamon I've never seen a more and cornstarch. But no, but honestly, <laughs> well, first of all, this to is, insinuate that apple is only a summer pie is absurd. It's, it's, well, it's largely, manifestly it's absurd. It's largely a summer pie. It's a 4th of July true. pie. And may I say, having had a moment to think about yes. it, you're both way off base. Okay. Oh, the boy. classic Thanksgiving pie is a pumpkin pie. Well, yes, of course. Like that is a 
is king. Yeah, but he was insinuating king. that you not have apple pie yeah, you at don't Thanksgiving have apple. at all. Let me just let me just drop the mic here. Not even it might not even be in the top five. Oh, that's insane. You go chocolate pie before you go lemon pie. Lemon pie before. What goes with turkey and mashed potatoes and cranberry sauce? Apple pecan pie. Did someone tie your tie a little too tightly? I mean, make a shut off the blood flow. Lastly, we have the cat toilet lavibot. <laughs> yeah. This is from Purr Song. It's the world's first and only IOT. What does IOT stand for? IOT. Internet of Things. Internet of Internet Things cat litter box things. to automatically clean itself and refill litter. Totally normal object to have in your living room. Yes. Uh, looks, uh, we're looking at it. Looks like a <laughs> the cat sticking out of it. It looks like a washing machine. Yeah, it's definitely on. photoshopped in there. <laughs> <laughs> we're watching video oh now of the cat make its okay. way into this litter box. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh-huh. it goes. It's the cat is oh, highly boy. suspicious. Very suspicious. <laughs> oh, oh wait a minute. So oh it sends you a message. It lets you oh know the cat. In the I, lobby I box. use the lobby bot. Yeah. And when you Can get you home tonight, you send back a text saying, "Shut your front factory mouth." No, it would be. Good job. Oh, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, good I'll boy. Right you know what, though? Home. People will buy it. People are going to buy it. Well, maybe that's I don't the brilliance. Know, maybe that's the brilliance. Not, no Bostonian is going to buy that. No. Well, that's, well, that's for sure. Is that it? That's the list. <laughs> wow. That is wow. a really stupid list. <laughs> There's another yeah. layer of irritation from my perspective. <laughs> okay. He goes on and on on this podcast about what a big family he's from and how he's yeah. the third child right. of six. Of six. Please. Oh, that's right. Paul you are. Paula, that is you the youngest of. the 11th child of 11. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Of very yeah. high-achieving older siblings who yeah. make you feel insignificant. Yeah. So. No, no. And we, John and I and everyone in the newsroom are on the receiving end of that. Well, of course. We've had my to rage, deal with, with your my outbursts. need for... Uh, True. Constant the, the attention and affirmation and and, and, and whenever and free food shows up in the newsroom, <laughs> right. you don't want to get Stand your back. hand between Paula Stand and the back. <laughs> so you know, Conan doesn't know. He doesn't about, know the real struggle. Uh, large family yeah. dynamics. Being <laughs> one of only six. Yeah. Well, coming in the next twelve months. Conan O'Brien at the Boston Dreamland Wax Museum. Congrats, Conan. You know he's going to make it. it a whole thing on his show, Oh, too. of course. He's going to have the cameras there when they fly out to measure him and take the pictures, and he'll just love every single <laughs> minute. Yeah. We love you, Conan. We really yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. We, we love, love the podcast. Truth. We do. We do. We yeah. listen faithfully. Yeah. yeah. We really love you. <laughs> Were we too harsh there? Men's feet. Are disgusting. Which I inherently disagree. In what way, Liam? Let's probe this. Just they're the hairy. They're mis- often misshapen. They're hairy. Their toes. Uh, I mean, finger often toes. The, the second toe is bigger than they're the big toe. Oftentimes, yeah. let's uh, let's establish. Well, no, wait a minute. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's let's have it be. Let us have it be resolved that feet are ugly. Well, let's make this a gender well, yeah. neutral conversation. Any I, feet? I've seen some women's yes. feet that are not exactly <laughs> a picnic. No. Okay? I don't like feet sure, in general. Sure, sure. But well, should we quickly talk about? pajama pants now too okay I, I can't believe i'm producing this con well, 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 this was your idea <laughs> yeah, this was your idea yes. i have yes. no idea where it would people go. are rude in public flip-flops because it is essentially the same thing excellent question that's a really good that question. is true flip-flops yeah flip-flops are disgusting i've never worn them i never will wear them i wear shoes to the beach people think i'm crazy about this like what kind sneakers. of shoes like sneakers like, well, shoes you know and i'll take them off Dog you beach. don't wear tevas or anything like that no so, no, I'm no, with no. I'm not a fan of sandals on men. Are disgusting. No one looks good in them. It's true. No men's feet look good. 
actually, I've been editing movies my whole life. Paul, I've told well, you about this. Liam it, has it, a complete philosophy yeah. about doing this for his own sake. Okay, Cold Mountain. If anyone's seen it, the end of the movie, Jude Law spends his entire uh, the entire Civil War trying to get back to Nicole Kidman's character. He mm-hmm. finally does. They meet in the woods, and then the next day he dies. So Liam can't what do I this. do is, after they meet up and they make love in the tent and that whole thing happens, I then turn the movie off. Boom. It, that's how it ends. It's over She's for pregnant him. with his child. Happy ending. Boom. That's good, okay. good to go there. Now we move on uh, to Love Actually. Uh, love Actually. Um, do, oh, right. The, yes, yes. There is a whole scene in Love Actually when uh, Laura Linney's character brings the young man she's been attracted to for a long, long time back to their apartment. And then the night ends up being ruined because her brother, who has a disability, she ends up having to leave and go see him. I just turn it off before she gets the phone call from the brother. She has this lovely night with this man she's been in love with forever. Fast forward to as the next scene. As far as he's concerned, I say, as, as far as I'm concerned, that never happened. Moulin Rouge, she gets the consumption at the end of the movie. There's a beautiful love story. Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman comes up again. It's a theme with me. But Moulin Rouge, they spend all the movie getting together and trying to fight the system to be together, the poor man and the rich woman. And finally they do, and then she dies of consumption. You turn it off before they get to the consumption. Uh, Princess and the Frog. As you can see, Liam belongs to the Choose to Believe Club. Did you you bail on the Wizard of Oz before the tornado hit? I bailed on the Wizard of Oz when the flying Flying monkeys monkeys came out because that is just the most disturbing movie of all time. That was wonderful. Yeah, that was we great. sound like Oh my god, that was a walk though. down memory lane. We do really. And as I said, I will be submitting this entire clip to my <laughs> psychologist and uh, have him take a listen to that and <laughs> see what he makes of it. Yeah, it is interesting how what comes out. Sort of the truth comes out when you're spending this much time in front of a live microphone. Yes. And it's unscripted. It's true. Yeah. But and it's you and I, John, we were so cerebral. We were so serious. Yeah. And then Liam came Liam on. came in and the whole thing turned into just a fart fest. <laughs> and bare feet. <laughs> Paula used the term manifestly absurd. And what was the other one? Let, us, let, it, let us have it be resolved. <laughs> yeah. Very good. So we were discussing good the BC most education things. But Paula's literature degree yeah. came through there. They don't there. teach uh, linguistics at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's... Try to maintain some decorum. Yes. Yeah. Well, what I love about this podcast, though, is that we'll usually have a, a little segment like that, like you've just heard at the end of each podcast where we have some fun debating a topic, whether it be apple pie or the ends of movies. But then earlier on in the podcast... We're often having very serious, substantive conversations with newsmakers or people who have really interesting stories. We had, just a few months ago, Kristen Picciolini on the show, who is a former leader of a neo-Nazi group, a skinhead group in Chicago, who now tries to get people out of the white nationalist movement. He had this realization in his 20s that he was on the wrong path, and, and now he has completely reversed course. And especially given what's been going on, whether it be in Pittsburgh or in Christchurch in New Zealand, it seems more important now than ever. And we'll we'll pair a, a really fascinating conversation, important conversation with Kristen Picciolini with some fun, too. And, and at the end of the podcast, you get to know us a little bit and see what our neuroses are. So we're on hiatus as actors are always asked, what do you plan to do? Well, we're on hiatus for a few weeks. Mm. You're going to go do a play on Broadway? Or are you going to Well, I, as you know, I have my Magic Mike <laughs> uh, tryout that I have been preparing for. I've been drinking lots of protein shakes. Working on your abs. Doing lots of push-ups. And 
audition tape is forthcoming. Too bad so. we can't see it. <laughs> Oh, we're, a couple, we're off for a couple of weeks? Yes. I think I may have stopped throwing up by the end of that period, <laughs> oh, so yes. I'll be ready to resume. Really? You'll be ready. No, yes. just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's uh, a time for rest, reflection, mm-hmm. contemplation, mm-hmm. renewal. It's mm-hmm. true. And then regurgitation. Good. That's All right, like, yes. That's the good cycle. I will, and we, we should point out again, next week, even though we're on hiatus for a couple of weeks, next week will be the best of the first year. Jonathan has put together a uh, compilation. four of our best interviews from the past year, so those will be put out next week, and then we'll have a couple of weeks off and we'll be back in May. And let's hear it for Jonathan Case, Woo. who really... Created this by yeah. skilled oh, editing and sound effects. Doing all the heavy lifting. It's and he, true. as you said, he very skillfully pitted us against one another it's at true. times. This was his to secret lead sauce. to good content. And you know, though it seems inconceivable, I have to admit, I think this could improve this yes, podcast. It could definitely and get we better. need your help, the listener. Mm-hmm. So uh, check out our Twitter feed at Studio BZ Pod, right? Jonathan, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, you can reach me at my Twitter handle. If you're shy about approaching Liam or Paula, I'm, I'm clearly the more warm and fuzzy uh, of the three. It's at Keller at Large. And I'm at Paula Evan WBZ. I'm at Liam WBZ. This has been a great season. It's been fun. Yeah. We'll see, see you in a couple of weeks. May. An honor and a pleasure. And in the meantime, we'll, we'll be seeing you. What does it mean to me to Z someone? You'll be seeing you. It's more than just seeing Well, you. this is the new... That's the thing. That's the thing. See, it's deeper than that. It's deeper. It's deeper. So you're BZing someone. Yeah. You're not seeing It's actually them. a new verb. You're understanding created. what they need. Yeah. Okay. To hear. Is it, is and it's an Austin thing. Is it an Austin thing? It is. It is an Austin thing. It is.